Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hey friends, welcome again to Engage 360 from Denver Seminary. We're glad you're with us. I'm Don Payne, your host. And if there is a book of the Bible that has been the source of more controversy and confusion than the book of Revelation, I don't know what it is, debatably, arguably, fittingly, arguably. But the book of Revelation is our subject for today, and we're delighted to have our esteemed colleague, Dr. David Mathewson, and good friend also from the New Testament faculty, here with us to talk about Revelation because he has uh, a new or forthcoming book from Cascade called A Companion to the Book of Revelation. Dave, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, it probably won't happen again, but, you know, we're, uh, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we do all kinds of things in a one-off fashion. Spe- especially after you hear what I say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, Dr. Lynn Kowick, our provost, is here as a co-host to, because she reads the Bible. And you needed somebody, somebody along those lines for this, Don. Somebody's got to yeah. actually read the Bible if they're going to ask questions about exactly. the Bible. So we invited exactly. Lynn. Um, and hopefully this won't turn into another New Testament nerd fest, but you never mm-hmm. know. Anyway, Dave, Lynn, uh, welcome. And, okay, here, if it's, is it really true, Dave, that Christians who really want to make a lot of money but don't want to appear to want to make a lot of money write books on Revelation? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Although I haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> well, I'm I'm thinking this this may be this may be the cash cow of it, yeah. commentaries. Yeah, right? and, and it has right, been right on Revelation. Right, it has been for a long time. A lot of the best sellers are, you know, the Left Behind series type of books, and and going all the way back to the '70s. How Lindsay, if anybody remembers that name, so they've all, whether intentionally or not, made. Uh, quite a profit off of writing on this book. That's why I say if Christians who want to make a lot of money but don't want to appear to make right. a lot of lot of to want to make a lot of money. Because it's a biblical book, so it's right. legitimate. Right. You're right yeah. on Revelation. So anyway, you've got the new book out. Tell us what led up to the writing of this book. Aside from the fact that you wanted to make a lot of money. Right. Without right. appearing <laughs> to want to make a lot of money. Yes. Right. <laughs> right. Well uh first of all they uh Whipfenstock asked me to do it, so I guess that was a good enough reason. But one of the reason, the the main reason that I did it is because the series, uh, the Compan- Cascade Companion series, uh, is is aimed at a rather general audience. So <clears throat> um, a lot of my writing in Revelation has been a little more academic, and I want to write something that a general readership, where, where I could take what I do in. Uh, some of my scholarship and make it available to a, a broader readership, make something that's readable uh, that would be conducive to Bible studies or, or just someone's personal reading. Uh, so I, I, I think we're, there are a ton of really good technical and academic commentaries that have come out on Revelation over the last 10 years or so, uh, but I still think there's a need to get that information out to a broader readership. And so I was delighted to write this book uh, because hopefully it, it will, one of my goals was to kind of take the fear out of uh, reading Revelation. Well, in all seriousness, I did find it incredibly <clears throat> readable and, and well-written. 
Well, Lynn and I are, are just brimming <laughs> with with questions for you. Yeah, and in, uh, you mentioned some of the previous popular writings on Revelation. And I remember when our son was in high school, he loved the Left Behind series. And I was just happy he was reading a book. So I was like, oh, that's great. You know, that's you're win. reading. That's a win. That's in the win <laughs> column. And then I would add, but, you know, there are other ways to understand Revelation. And I guess I said it so often that at some point he mouthed the words back to me. Yeah, and I know, Mom, there are other ways to understand Revelation. So my question to you is, how would the first listeners, readers of the book of Revelation, how would they have understood what they're reading? Mm -hmm. First of all, you've asked the right question. I find it interesting that when we approach any other New Testament book or Old Testament book, but you, you approach a letter like Galatians, we ask the question of who was Paul and who were the readers and what was the problem he was facing? Why did Paul write this book? Who were the Judaizers, even if there's disagreement as to exactly who they were and, and what issues Paul is addressing? Uh, everyone agrees we need to ask, how would the first readers have received that? And I've always been puzzled, why do we ignore that when it comes to Revelation? And, and so I'm convinced uh, uh, in chapter 2 and 3, you find the seven messages to the churches. They're actually not technically letters. They're prophetic messages to the seven churches. And by reading that, you get a sense of what the readers were facing and what the problems were. And, and you have seven actual churches in Asia Minor, which was right in the center of, of imperial Roman rule. And so they're facing all the issues of what it means to try to live out their lives as God's people in that kind of context. Uh, to what extent can they uh, kind of curry favor with Rome and still maintain their allegiance to Jesus Christ? To what extent can they show their allegiance to Rome and the emperor and still maintain their faithful witness to Christ and the gospel. And so the book of Revelation is meant to address that and try to help those readers understand what it is they're facing. What, what is this empire that they're up against? What does it mean and what does it look like to, uh, to maintain their faithful witness as God's people in the midst of that? This, this is already sounding creepily familiar, uh, but maybe we'll come back to that with contemporary times. Well, that's exactly it. I had kind of a follow-up here, and that is uh, you you write uh, on, uh, as you're talking about these churches on page 55, you talk about how these churches uh, struggle with complacency and the temptation to compromise with the pagan Roman environment and thus are ineffective in their witness. And we know that, for example, the church at Ephesus lost its first love. And so I wanted to ask, you know, does that critique relate at all to American evangelicals today? What might we gain from the, the messages to those churches all those years ago? Yeah, again, you've asked the right question. When you look at those seven churches, uh, one, one kind of misconception of the book of Revelation, and it's, it's not completely inaccurate, it's just incomplete, and that is Revelation is written to console persecuted Christians. Well, you read those seven messages, and only two churches, uh, as, as most people know, the, the 
uh, only two churches don't receive a negative evaluation as part of what crisis of those churches. And that's because they are being persecuted because they've taken a stand and refused to compromise. The other five churches, to some degree, some worse than others, have have so compromised with Rome, Roman government, with the secular culture around them, that uh, Christ has very harsh words for them. Some of them he balances out with positive, but there's some like the, the very last letter to the Laodiceans that is very negative. And... Uh, they're 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 so far off on the deep end <laughs> that, that uh, Christ doesn't have much good to say about the church at Laodicea. Uh, but I I wrote an article once where I I entitled it a Laodicean reading of Revelation, and I think for most North American Christians, we're probably not meant to identify with the two churches that are being persecuted. I, I doubt that we're going to face or most of us are facing anything like they were in the first century Roman Empire. I think we're probably more in danger of compromising in living in a, uh, a society that's, that's bent on accumulation of wealth and, and uh, uh, the temptation to compromise our faithful witness by, uh, by simply going along with, with uh, whether it's pursuing the American dream or whatever it is, is, is probably revelation is, is meant more of a, a warning not to become too comfortable in our surroundings and to become too complacent with our life in American culture. And that would go, uh, not picking on America, but any culture that, that uh, fits with the sort of thing that John was warning the first readers. You, you mentioned, Dave, that there are three types of literature in Revelation. And I'm wondering, how, how does confusing those types of literature account for how Revelation is so commonly misused hmm. or misread? Yeah, the the problem with Revelation, un, <clears throat> unlike even though you know, the the Gospels throw up their own difficulties, uh, Pauline letters do, uh, but even with the Gospels, we we still have close analogies to the kind of literature through uh, through e- even novels, although the Gospels are historical. But, but uh, narrative type of writings and literature, we still write letters or more accurately probably send emails. But when's the last time you wrote or read an apocalypse or something like the book of Revelation? So we don't have any close literary parallels. And, and uh, so we often end up focusing on revelations of prophecy and and we treat it like a a detailed prediction of the end, sort of like John is a fortune teller, tell, simply for the sake of uh, uh, satisfying our curiosity, mm-hmm. telling us what's going to happen in the future. And, and so I think a lot of misunderstandings of the book uh, stem from failing to understand what kind of literature was this that uh, John is writing that uh, we may not be as familiar with, but I think the first readers would have been very familiar with, and they would have known what was going on when they picked it up and read that first uh, revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him to show. And later when John calls it a prophecy, and when he begins and ends it like one of Paul's letters, 
uh, they would uh, immediately have understood what was going on when they read this. And do you think they would have they would have picked up on those shifts, those literary shifts between the three types? They, uh, the, uh, that's a good question. I, I'm not sure that um, maybe. Uh, for example, a prophecy in Apocalypse, I'm not sure that they would have distinguished sharply and they'd have thought, oh, now I'm reading a prophecy. Oh, this is also an apocalypse. Oh, now it's a letter. Uh, as much as they would have uh, they would have understood the literary cues and that would have Maybe helped like them. Maybe like intuitively? To, right. And that would have helped them to, uh, again, kind of navigate how, how am I, what am I going to expect from this book and how should I approach it and read it? And I think some of the issue is that we don't have another book like this mm-hmm. in the New Testament. Parts of Daniel um, is a similarity. And most, I think, most scholars would would agree that this is a Jewish genre. So it's not something in the wider Greco-Roman world that, that is apocalypse. Um, so could you talk just a little bit about what is this form of communication that uh, is so specific to the Jews, and especially to Jews not living way, way back in Old Testament times like the time of Moses, but more around the time of Jesus and a couple of centuries before? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, there is also in Daniel, but it's, it's not prevalent. It's, it's kind of an interesting genre. Yeah, it is. And... Um uh, between about roughly 200 BC and 200 AD, uh, there were a group of writings, and and you can access them. They're not secret or hidden. Uh, there, you can Google them. They're in, uh, collected in books, but uh, a, a group of writings that we call an apocalypse. And basically, what that was, and Revelation, even though it's very different, it shares features with this kind of literature. Uh, an apocalypse was basically just a written account of someone's visionary experience. And and usually it addressed situations of crisis or situations of political upheaval or uh, uh, situations that, that called for this kind of communication. And and uh, what it was, it would, it would be a, a, a record of someone's visionary experience that referred, I think, both to events that were going on. It's trying to help the readers make sense of what they're going through. It wouldn't make any sense just to predict the future 20 centuries away from then, uh, but, but it, it was meant to help them come to grips with their own contemporary situation. But part of that was putting their situation against the backdrop of the wrap-up of history. And so you even find Revelation kind of at times oscillating between those two. You find that in some of the Old Testament prophetic texts is making sense of their own day. Events that are happening in their own day are just on the horizon, but also events that will take place at the wrap-up of history when Christ returns. And and part of the way of doing that is the, the, the kind of the genius of apocalyptic literature, it communicated that through highly metaphorical, symbolic language. And, and so in Revelation, you read of these beasts and dragons and locusts with human heads and tails like scorpions and you sulfur and smoke and, 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 all, and frogs and all these things and the account of the plagues, because that's the way apocalypse is communicated. They did not communicate literally like you might sit down and watch a news documentary or a historical documentary, but it communicated th- through a metaphor or or symbolic language that was meant to impact 
the heart as much as it was the, the mind and to communicate information. So along with talking about the genres, though, you, you also talk about John tells a story in Revelation, that there is uh, a, a story throughout all of this. There's a overarching uh, message, and I think at times uh, people read a scene here or a scene there, and it's it they it kind of feels chopped up. Mm-hmm. But w- what's the story that John is communicating? Yeah, um, I, I, and I think you're right. We often we tend to uh, compartmentalize visions of Revelation, try to make sense of them in their own. And and sometimes a, a first reading Revelation in places does appear to be a little bit choppy, but I think when you read it closely, it is telling a story. And it starts in chapter 4 and 5, I think, with John's vision of the heavenly throne scene and all of heaven worshiping God and, and the Lamb and acknowledging their sovereignty. And the question that chapter 4 and 5 raises, I think, is how is this scene in heaven going to become a reality in earth? And that takes you to chapter 21 and 22, the last two chapters, where all creation acknowledges God's sovereignty and worships. The throne of God and the Lamb that was in chapter 4 and 5 is now at the center of the new creation, the new Jerusalem. So everything in between chapters 4 and 5 and 21 and 22 basically tells how is God going to do that? How is God going to bring heaven down to earth? I like what Richard Baucom, a British scholar, says that in a sense, Revelation is an extended commentary on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, when he says, uh, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The as it is in heaven is chapter four and five. God's sovereignty is perfectly acknowledged all heaven worships, and then the question is, how is the that part of the Lord's Prayer on earth going to be answered? And uh, 21 and 22 get you there. Heaven comes down to earth, and God dwells with all his people on a new creation. And then everything in between is the story of how God, through, uh, through initial judgments, but also through the witnessing activity of the church, brings about uh, that scene in chapter 21 and 22. The book of Revelation is often leveraged with the the doctrine of eschatology, the eschaton, last things. And in many systematic approaches to theology, Revelation is one of the key go-to places for the doctrine of the end times. But you make a really interesting claim here that uh, that eschatology is actually not the primary doctrine of the book of Revelation, even though it's a source for that. Uh, say more about that. Yeah, it's, uh, and and maybe that was a little bit of an overreaction to attempts to make eschatology the most important thing in the book. But uh, again, what is behind that is John's main attempt, main intention in the book is not to give us an eschatological timeline to answer the question, here's how everything's going to work out and pan out in the end. Again, as much as it is to encourage faithfulness in the people of God and to, uh, as I see it, John's main purpose is to get the people of God to worship God and the Lamb no matter what the consequences. So there's, 
Uh, Revelation has one of the richest Christologies in the entire New Testament. Uh, it, it has a unique way of portraying who God is, uh, especially in the context of, uh, of anti-imperial claims where uh, you know what Caesar was claiming, what Rome was claiming. Uh, now John portrays both God and the Lamb as, as uh, the true source of salvation, the true source of peace, the true saviors of the world, uh, the, the ones who are the only ones worthy of worship. Uh, and then what you know, the, the calls over and over again to follow. One of my favorite texts in all of Revelation is in chapter 14. It describes the people of God, God as those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And to me, that kind of summarizes what Revelation is all about. It's, it's not a prediction of the end. Yeah, it has, it, it has a lot to say about eschatology and rightfully plays a major role in our understanding of, of uh, uh, end, end time stuff. But at the heart of Revelation's message is a call for the church to follow the Lamb wherever he goes, to maintain its witness to worship God and the Lamb in unqualified obedience and allegiance, no matter what the consequences it brings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, let me piggyback on uh, on Don's question by asking you to comment on the millennium. <laughs> yeah, you're laughing yeah, already. You're you knew gonna, that was coming. You're not going to slough that off no, that no, easily. Somehow, and what is that, verse uh, 4 of chapter 20, Mm-hmm. Yeah, is the place where it's mentioned just once in the yeah. in the letter, but it takes on a uh, casts a big shadow through mm-hmm. uh, uh, over the whole letter. Talk a little bit about what's going on there. Hey, boy, I could say a lot about that. Um, oh, look at the time. <laughs> yeah, <he> wants- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, First, maybe just kind of describe for our readers what. Um, and you do an excellent job in the book of laying things out. I want to uh, encourage people to pick up the book because uh, mm-hmm. you lay things out really clearly and helpfully there. But yeah, sort of what what it is, and then how people have interpreted it. Yeah, the I mean the millennium uh, just refers to the reference in chapter twenty uh, to, and as you just said, Lynn, it's the only place in the New Testament or the Bible that the thousand year reign is mentioned. And, um, I, a a number of theories have grown up around the millennium. And, And often your approach to revelation is equated with how you treat, I just had some of the other day ask me, what's, do you take an amillennial or postmillennial, premillennial view of revelation? As if that's what the book's about. As if that's what the book is about, and that's the major, that's kind of the central text. And you look at church history, and uh, you you can understand that. uh, Very early on, the millennium became a a rather, for whatever reasons, became a a key text and a key notion in the book of Revelation. And, um, but a a, a couple of observations, when you read Revelation itself, I find it interesting that if you read verses 4 through 6 of Revelation 20, it, it's it, the reference of the millennium is so cryptic. It, it says, it doesn't even, it's not even clear where it takes place. We assume it's on earth, but there's been some who have argued that it takes place in heaven. 
what is known as the amillennial view says the thousand years is symbolic of the entire period between the first coming and second coming of Christ. Uh, so uh, when you look at chapter 20 itself, it, it, it doesn't tell you a lot. It doesn't even say, you know, what goes on there? Um, who's there? Uh, there's all kinds of questions that are raised about the millennium. Uh, and I think there's a reason for that, and that is because the millennium plays a very specific role in John's story. In my opinion, in my view, the, the main focus of chapter 20 is not the millennium. It's a judgment of Satan. It's, uh, chapter 20 comes at the end of a, lo- a series of judgment or removal scenes where God is beginning to remove in judgment everything that stands opposed to his kingdom, his purposes, and and his people. And so he removes Babylon in chapter 17, 18. He removes the two beasts in a battle in chapter 19. And then finally he removes the primary antagonist, which is Satan, in chapter 20. And then you have this kind of sweeping up scene, comprehensive removal of everything in judgment, the the well-known great white throne judgment. And it's in the middle of that where you find the millennium mentioned. And I think that's how we need to understand it. The purpose of the millennium, I think, is simply to show in the context of Satan's judgment, we find a perf- the, the, the people that were mistreated under Satan's rule, that were accused, Satan's called the accuser of God's people back in chapter thir- 12 where he's first introduced. In the context of all that, in the context of Satan's judgment, it's necessary, in a sense, for God to vindicate those who were wrongly accused in this life. And so that's basically what the millennium does. Those that Satan reigned over unjustly and oppressively and put to death, now they are raised and they reign in a profound reversal. And so to me, that's what the millennium does. Now, where all the fireworks go off is chapter 21 and 22. There's, you have just a barrage of Old Testament quotations and allusions uh, that, that this is where the, the Old Testament promises of a coming messianic kingdom now transpire, not in the millennium, but in, in the new creation where God now dwells with his people. So I think our focus needs to shift instead of, uh, you know, equating interpretation of Revelation with with uh, the millennium is our focus should be on the new creation where John puts it is as the goal of God's redemptive activity in this world and his redemptive purposes. Okay, so I'm feeling as a systematic theologian, I'm feeling a bit chastised here. You so, okay, no. <laughs> uh, so are you are you telling me that I need to reduce the length of my lecture on the millennial schemata? that you described uh, from a couple of hours to maybe five minutes and say, okay, this is what a lot of people have believed. Now let's move on. Right. Well, you know, I, so have we overcooked, yeah. I mean, this is really going to start I, the pot. I, have we overcooked that whole conversation? I personally think we have, uh, but you know, the, the millennium has received so much attention. It's necessary to deal with it. But Again, at the end of the day, when we're thinking in terms of how we teach eschatology, I still think our focus needs to be on, on the new creation as the, again, this is the goal of God's redemptive activity. It's not, the millennium is not the climax or the pinnacle. It's God redeeming all things in a new creative act with uh, God dwelling with his people 
you know, there's a, uh, we were talking earlier about uh, kind of make, uh, jokingly saying all you need is the first two chapters of Genesis and the book of Revelation. Uh, but there's a lot of connections between chapter 21 and 22 of yeah, Revelation yeah, and are. Genesis 1 and 2 yeah. to show God has now, uh, in light of the events of chapter 3 and sin entering the world, now God has restored everything in his creation, especially his people, but all creation, in light of how he originally intended yeah, it. Yeah, it brings it all around. Right. You know, yeah. I find at times... Um, trying to imagine this new heaven and this new earth and our raised and glorified bodies that Paul stresses so much uh, to the Corinthians, to the Philippians. Um, And it's a real loss, isn't it, at times when we think of Christ's work as only or primarily forgiving our sins Mm -hmm. and not also recognizing that we will share new life with him in some sort of physical sense, an immortal, imperishable body. It's hard to imagine, but that that's the promise of the end of mm-hmm. Revelation, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I sometimes say this jokingly, but I, it's, I, I'm serious, is, is I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that I want to go to heaven, at least the way it's often described. And I don't think it's wrong to say that because from from Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God's intent for humanity has always been a physical existence and bodies on an earth, not to escape uh, escape to heaven. That's kind of a Gnostic idea, I guess. But um, the, the hope, and, and to me, that, that, uh, that's what gives, gives, should give us hope, that um, our, our primary hope and, and goal is not escape and to you know float probably float up around in the clouds in heaven but our our ultimate destiny and goal is a physical existence in physical bodies on a new earth however different that may be as you said lynn however difficult it may be to conceive of is is that is our goal and to me that makes it worth sacrificing i'm not sure i want to sacrifice this world to go float around in the air but i'm more willing to sacrifice this this earth and the things of this earth and life here for the sake of Christ in exchange for life and new creation that yeah. far exceeds anything that I can experience here. Yeah, I love what you said about how that that, that very common vision of heaven, which is this sort of floaty, disembodied, mm-hmm. ethereal something, is so uncompelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it reminds me of my own childhood growing up in the church where that vision of heaven was was very common right and i was regularly told that i should be eager to go there and i felt very guilty for not being eager to go there man i had stuff to do <laughs> trucks to play with and all kinds of fun things to do and nothing about that sounded appealing right. i've had one person uh and and this was a student that was in the conservatory and loved to sing and that was the only person that, that said oh just to be able to sing all day every day all the time, <laughs> you know, in the great hymn around the throne right. and only yeah. doing that. That's the only. When I think about being in church 24-7 for eternity, mm-hmm. 
I have mixed yeah. feelings about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I only know one person, and they were they had a phenomenal voice. I. Uh, I make a joyful noise to the Lord, uh, and hopefully when I get my raised and glorified body, uh, I'll also have a voice to, to match. But. Even then, I hope there's a little more variety than <laughs> singing all the time. All the time. Dave, you really <laughs> caught my attention with what you said about the particular way the book of Revelation addresses social justice. Hmm. Comment on that. <clears throat> yeah, again, I think... Um, a, a couple things. Number one is it Revelation addresses social justice in a very different way than you find in the book of James, for example, or Jesus, where he goes after the wealthy and, and champions the cause of the poor and the oppressed and the widow. Uh, Revelation says nothing about that. In, in fact, there's some have even gone as far to say Revelation doesn't have a social justice. But I think the way Revelation handles it is is not by championing the cause of the poor, but by going after the ideology that lies behind injustice. Okay. That is a, a godless, idolatrous, evil, murderous system that uh, creates an economy that's out of whack. That's what I think is going on in chapter six in those seal in the uh, the the seals is it's showing what happens when you have an economy that's bent on on satisfying the greed of a godless empire and a godless society. So it, it goes after social justice that way by by a, 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 un, uncovering the ideology that lies behind it. And then in chapter 21 and 22, by portraying a just world, a, a world that is just and a world that is righteous a world a world where there's equality, uh, where people can drink of the water of life without cost, things like that. Wow, Dave, this this is this is a great book, and I say that not just because you're my friend. I think I would say it anyway. I'm, I'm pretty sure <laughs> it is a it is a great book. You can and say that because you're not his friend, and, and right. pretty much so. Yeah, an objective, right? right? an objective <laughs> bystander. That's why. Yeah, that's why we brought her in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and and, and it's really, accessible. It really is. Yeah, and anyone it, can pick that up and be blessed by it. This uh, this really should inspire. I, I'm not sure I would have expected to say this some time ago, but this should inspire more interest in the Book of Revelation. Mm. If anything, I, I'm wondering now whether I've um, maybe overreacted in some settings because of the type of obsession, the type mm -hmm. of obsession with the book of Revelation mm -hmm. that I see so widespread in in many Christians' lives. It's, it's understandable, mm -hmm. but you've helped clarify some of the appropriate ways of reading this book and some of the contemporary pertinence relevance of this book. And so I hope this will inspire... Um, a lot of interest in reading it, but a fresh hmm. way of reading the book of Revelation. Dave Mathewson, uh, a companion to the book of Revelation by Cascade. Uh, as we record this, I think it is forthcoming. No, it's out. Yeah. Oh, it, it is out yeah. now. Yeah. Okay, good, good. Get yourself a copy. And you can give this. my copy back to me now, please, because I, I did I'll, have to loan I'll, that to you. I, thank, thank you. Dan. You're, 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 even, you're handing it to me across the table in. I have one. I'll with a six you, foot appropriate six foot distance. distance. Yeah, my yeah, long distance. gorilla arms here are, are <laughs> reaching the book to you from an appropriate distance. Yeah. yeah, this has been Engage 360, and we've been delighted to interact with our friend and colleague, Dr. Dave Mathewson, from our New Testament faculty. Uh, he's made 
uh, I don't know, probably several decades worth of investigation and investment in the book of Revelation, so he knows what he's talking about, and we hope you'll um, access his work here. Uh, on that note, we would encourage you to visit our website periodically, denverseminary.edu, and there you can find all kinds of really helpful and sometimes even fun resources uh, that will benefit your ministry and get more info about our degree programs. We would love to talk with you or with anybody you know who would love to study with us. Uh, Thanks to our administration for supporting all this and our production team. And thanks to you for spending a little time with us. I'm Don Payne, and we will look forward to talking with you again next week. Take care.